Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. From the Scratch Lab Studios in Boulder, Colorado, I'm George Thomas, RoadBikeRider.com Radio, The Six Success Factors, Part 3, and this is our final episode uh, with John Hughes and Vice President at Training Peaks, Bryce Walsh. Um, Really looking forward to hearing about these last two, John. Let Let me just remind our listeners what all six are. The first one is planning, which can both be planning for how you're going to build up your season as well as planning how you're going to ride a specific event second one is training and really training tailored for your kind of riding third one is nutrition eating enough to keep your brain fueled as well as your muscles fourth one is mental which in many ways i think is the most important one So those are the first two podcasts, and then today we're going to talk about uh, skills and equipment, the final two. And as a prefatory note, in all of my years of riding and coaching, uh, I've raced triathlons, I've raced swimming, I've raced skiing, cross-country skiing, riding, mountain biking even, all six of these success factors apply to all of those sports, as well as we were talking at the break about, you know, Ski racing, really fast two-and-a-half-minute stuff. It applies to all of those. You don't just train well. you got to dial in your equipment. you got to really sharpen your mental focus. And what's interesting is, depending upon the discipline, the relative importance of them varies. My guess is, correct me, George, my guess is that equipment is pretty high up on the list for slalom skiing. I would agree with you. And from my heretical point of view, equipment is near the bottom of the list for endurance riders. And the reason I say heretical, uh, our listeners, many of them read the the excellent RoadBikeRider.com newsletter that John Marsh puts out every week. And the sections that are of most interest to the readers are equipment. And the reason I think equipment is of such great interest is it's controllable. You can change your seat and make your ride better. You can buy faster tires. So all these variables you can control, but at least for endurance riding, I think equipment makes a relatively small difference in how one rides. As long as it's set up correctly. Part of equipment is set up. Absolutely, bike fit things like that, as well as selection of components. Now, you two guys are doing Race Across the West, which is 900-some miles from Oceanside, California, to Durango, Colorado, and you're riding it as a two-man relay, which means 
George is going to go absolutely as hard as he can for 15 minutes, and then he's going to hop in the van and eat gummy bears, and Bryce is going to go as hard as he can for 15 minutes and hop in the van, and then George is going to go out and burn those gummy bears off, and they're just going to alternate that. What kind of equipment are you guys using? I'm on uh, a bike that was designed by a friend of mine who's a firefighter in... uh, Flagstaff, Arizona. This is going to be the fourth year that I've been that I've used that bike in raw. It just fits. It's comfortable. I'm comfortable on it. Um, and it's funny when I do visualization of the race, I'm riding that bike, and I just it's home. But I think about the equipment: wheels, tires, bicycle, aero bars, our shoes, uh, the pedals that we use, uh, the kits that we're wearing, helmets, glasses. Um, Lots of stuff can go wrong with any of those, and uh, you've got to be prepared to deal with it. So an important part of it that, that George is mentioning is, is it's got it's to fit, both in a bike fit sense and in the components uh, fitting for him. Uh, one of the things I like to say is everybody's butt is as individual as their faces. So you need a saddle that, that fits your butt. And I mean, George and I have ridden together occasionally. They're recovery rides for George and they're intensity rides for me. And I get to look at his bike, and his bike is set up for speed. There is no doubt about it. His position on the bike, uh, fast wheels, relatively light saddle, no water bottle cages, because you don't need a water bottle cage when you're doing 15-minute pulls, et cetera, et cetera. Bryce, what's your bike like, or your bike's? You know, it's actually an interesting conundrum I've had with this particular event on on this. So I'm I'm using the same bike that I've used for, you know, the last few years in my ultra racing. But I sometimes, as we're leading up to this, I wonder if this event as a two-man team, actually, we could be more aggressive about that since George and I are typically uh, doing very long races, comfort plays into it more than a typical bike race so you have a slightly more relaxed um setup with your bike typically um not as aggressive like i i I really thought about like this would probably be a really great time to bring in a tt bike for the flat sections and the light bike for the climbs um i think this first time around we'll we'll go with what's comfortable because it is long enough that you still have to deal with the comfort but I think we could, um, if we keep racing together, maybe we'll, we'll go a little more aggressive at some point, too. I hope we do. So, I do yeah. have to say, you know, that's a really good point. But uh, getting hit by the Suburban in 2012 and all the surgeries, and then the deer in 2014 and all the more surgeries. <laughs> but uh, in 2014 and 2015, my left arm... Uh, had given out by the time I got to around Flagstaff. And so descending was really scary. I could not have been on a more aggressive bike um, because I'd go into a death wobble when I would go down because I just, I didn't have an arm. I couldn't grab the uh, the handlebars on the top. So I just had to stay on my aero bars. Mm-hmm. So even though we are doing short pulls, it does add up to time in the bike. I mean, we're still riding 460 miles a piece in 50 hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's nothing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I like the way Bryce put it. It's a conundrum. Yeah. It is. Of, of do, you, do you go with a bike that's good for comfort and distance, or do you go with a bike that's more aggressive? Mm-hmm. 
both time trial bike and hill climbing bike. And I happen to own six bikes, which is probably more than I need. George, how many bikes do you own? Uh, just two that I ride on a regular basis. I have a couple of tandems that are just up in the shed. And okay. Yeah, two. Bryce? Yeah. I'm down to four right now, so which is the lowest I've been in a long time. <laughs> yeah, and the rule of thumb is how many bikes do you need? Well, one more than you currently have. <laughs> the reason I bring that up is is a lot of people can't afford, don't want, whatever, half a dozen or even two different bikes for different disciplines. So it comes down to what can you do on your existing bike for whatever kind of riding you're going to be doing. And if you're a century rider, then you, then it your conundrum tilts toward more comfort. If you got the lightest saddle in the world, but you can't stand to sit on it, it's going to be terrible for a century. Lon Haldeman, we've mentioned him in each of the last podcasts. He's big on a Leatherbrooks uh, B17. I haven't weighed one, but it's heavy. I can tell you that. But he can sit on it for a long time. And a lot of a lot of uh, brevet riders use that. So comfort is really important. Um, if if you go to the the RBR website and pull down the tab under health, there are a number of columns that I've written on what I call the points of contact. So feet butt and hands as well as neck shoulders and so forth and so on so one way to think about your bike is for an endurance ride where you're really thinking about comfort george has brought up another point uh, you need to be prepared for malfunctions and for endurance rides from my point of view reliability is far more important than weight I gave up integrated brake shifting systems uh, years ago because they break and I can't fix them out there on the road. And I use bar end shifters because they're much less likely to break and if they do, I can always replace the brake cable. So that's a whole nother part of equipment. If you're gonna do a, a climbing event, if, I mean, if you want a climbing bike, then you look for all the ways in the world that you can make it lighter. And if I remember, Andy Hampston's hill climb bike only had one chainring. He thought that's all he needed. And, you know, took off the other chainring. Unnecessary. Uh, I've been thinking of getting a single speed for climbing Flagstaff because all I need is one really low gear. I'm a, a bit humorous, but you can make specific equipment choices for your bike. I mean, you guys both use aero bars, right? For this event. Just for this event. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, I think we both put them on yesterday. <laughs> and they'll come off as soon as we hit the finish line. <laughs> and, and you've made the right choice. If you're looking to, to improve your aerodynamics, the most important thing you can do is use aero bars. More important than a skin suit, more important than an aero helmet, more important than any of those things. Why did you put them on yesterday? Why not wait until Oceanside? I mean, oh my God. Because I wanted them for a race simulation ride so that my body can get used to being in that position. Yeah, it, it was, um, yeah, we were, as, as George mentioned, we were talking about this earlier. It's, um, in fact, I, I won't even change which aero bars I use at this point because we're too close to the event. Um, so I've been using these same ones actually since RAM, since so 11 years ago is when I first got these ones. 
just because I know exactly how I feel on the bike with them. Um, so uh, yeah, with one month to go, there's there's no trying new gear. I guess at this point would be the best way to put it. So so that plays into the equipment. You know, get it dialed in early. Don't uh, don't try stuff up to race day. You, you guys are both very very wise to do that. One of, one of the huge rules is nothing new on events. Not even brand new shorts. Yeah. Test everything on training rides. Make sure, you know, don't change bottles just because somebody sponsors you. Check it all out beforehand. Um, I wrote an ebook for roadbikerider.com called uh, Stopping Cycling Showstoppers. And showstopper is something that makes you stop before you're done. You know, you get halfway through raw and you have to quit. And what it's all about is for every ride, eh, not for every ride, sometimes it's fun to just go ride for coffee or whatever, but, but for most rides, have a specific objective of what you want to test. You want to see if that new saddle really works for you. That's what you're going to check out. You're not just going to go ride and see how the bike fits or does that new stem position or the new shoes or whatever. And by systematically testing different things, every time you test something, you're eliminating yet another showstopper. And if you do it right, you've gone through everything that can go wrong and stop you, everything that you can control that will go wrong, that you can stop you. How light are your bikes? Um, mine's not overly light. You know, I, I, did, I did sort of want to mention, though, the, uh, the saddle aspect of it. So I have an a aero-carbon road bike um, from Lightspeed, um, and I have a Brooks leather saddle perched on top of this integrated seat post. I get no end of comments off of this too, <laughs> um, because it, you know, and it and it's a lighter Brooks and and all that, and it, but it's really just it's the only thing I've found that can work. So I I put up with this crazy look, you know. I just, I I just gotta gotta deal with it and have that leather saddle perched on a high tech carbon frame, you know. So um, so yeah, it's one of those like you know, the arrow bars too. It's um, how much of it is how it looks versus how it functions. So, I, I've never gone for light. I, I feel like if I want to get light equipment, I need to lose little my love handles or whatever. <laughs> so I would much rather lose it there and have the reliability because to me, function equals speed. And I think my bike probably weighs around 17 pounds, 16 and a half. But I mean, it's I'd rather lose the pound on my stomach. Uh, yeah, I mean, George is making a very smart and, and in some ways obvious point, which is if you want a lighter bike, uh, lose some weight. Uh, I've got one of the old titanium Merlins, one of the original ones, and I've ridden that for years. And I carry a seat pack big enough to put in a bottle of wine, a French bread, loaf of French bread, and you know everything you can think of. I don't carry that stuff, but I carry you know three spare tubes and a spare tire, maybe, and a bunch of tools and so forth and so on. Uh, because all the kinds of events that I ride, uh, especially back when I was doing ultra, the time that counts is from when you leave until when you finish, both riding time and time off the bike. And I would rather have the tools with me that I need to fix something quickly than have to screw around. I would rather have wider, more comfortable tires that are less likely to flat, you know, gator skins or something like that, than really fast tires, where you're risking a problem. Although in PBP uh, 
87, I did ride 18 millimeter tires. That was an experience. Mm-hmm. I was I was riding one of the old Kestrels. Which were was, they silk? They were not silk, oh. which was very aerodynamic. <laughs> this was back in the days when you were still required to, to have fenders. And the only way I could fit fenders in there and still get my wheels in was to ride the smallest possible tires that I could. <laughs> I, I would not recommend that. So, so the important point here is two important points. One, one is choose equipment for comfort. And these guys are racing. And the other is test everything. Nothing new when you're starting out. Yeah. And, Third point, it's idiosyncratic. I mean, there are a lot of equipment reviews here in roadbikerider.com. I read all of them because there's very useful information in there. And I may decide I like a product or I don't like a product, but I make it for in, based on information. I make an informed judgment. And it comes down to what I call the experiment of one. We're each an experiment of one and what we're, you know. I mean, Bryce rides a Brooks. I tried a Brooks. I just do not like a Brooks. I actually have an old Ideal leather saddle from the 70s that I still ride. That's I'm going to sell an Italia flight. Yeah. <laughs> I find it comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I now wear uh, mountain bike shoes, you know, because I do a lot of ride mountain bike pedals. I do a lot of rides where I, uh, you know, I stop and I want to walk around, want to go to the restaurant and have lunch or whatever, and I don't want to clunk around in my cleats. I remember going to REI a couple years ago to buy the shoes, uh, and the guy measured me and he says, well, you need 48s. And I said, you got any 49s? And he says, you don't want them that big. And I said, you got any 50s? And he says, you really don't want them that big. And I didn't say, well, I wrote distance cycling. I know about this. I just said, you know, when I do long rides, my feet swell. And if they're tight when I start, they're going to hurt like crazy when I'm done. I mean, hot foot is not caused by riding in hot weather. It's caused by your feet swelling, compressing against the nerves. What about other equipment choices? Anything you guys want to add? I actually really like the time trial helmet and the long sleeve skin suit just because it makes me feel like I'm racing. That's the only (laughs) time I put that stuff on. But mentally, it's a boost for me. Yeah, I mean, that's that's, that's a valid... um, reason too i mean there's there's so many things we do as cyclists that are really just to kind of go through the ritual of a race i guess as well um you know like shaving your legs you know to be honest doesn't do really anything for you aerodynamically to speak of but i um, do it because <laughs> of massage i don't like getting a massage with hairy yeah. legs <laughs> there's, there's that aspect but what it really gets down to it is it's, it's ritual of preparing for the for the event and i think you, you know, just don't do it the day before you race because supposedly that weakens you having your hair having to grow having to generate yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but it uh, you know but that's that's maybe one sort of silly example but there you know there's so many things that you do as part of this ritual of getting ready for the final event and each one of those steps whether it be putting on a, a skin suit or um, you know, checking all the um, bolts on your bike. I mean, that was that was one thing that someone along the way said. You know, you, every before every race, they check tension on every single bolt or something like that. So. Don't you have your lucky socks? <laughs> I mean, I certainly have the clothes I can't wear during a race. <laughs> really, I'm learning learning a lot from my, well, my partner here. Uh, I, I, I don't have any good luck or bad luck charms. I don't think. I haven't, I haven't run into that yet. 
what you guys are talking about is the, I mean, it feeds back into the mental that we talked about uh, in the last podcast, which is the, these rituals help relax you, build confidence. You've done everything you can. You know, you've got it all dialed in. I mean, Bryce makes a really good point about checking over your bike. Uh, if you've got a big event coming, do not wait until the night before to go over your bike. Go over it a week before. Make sure everything's tight. You guys both know Lee Mitchell, who passed away recently. Uh, Lee rode double centuries in California for years, and he never had a flat tire. Never. He put on a new rim strip, a new tube, and a new tire on each wheel before every double. No flats. And so equipment choices can, in fact, help with that. So I said earlier, I, I, I think equipment is the least important of of the six six success factors for endurance riders. Uh, more important for performance riders, I mean, you know, if, you, if your goal is to go out on the, on the weekend two or three hour club ride and hammer with the big dogs, then having a lighter bike or lightening your bike by taking things off makes sense. Having a faster wheel set so you can accelerate faster makes sense. Uh, having a somewhat more aggressive position on the bike makes sense. Probably not a position you want to ride 100 miles in, but a comfortable one. Uh, another brief anecdote from our Ram days, and again, something that Juan Haldeman uh, has said, there are riders who come into Ram really aggressive positions. Low bars, low, hem, low aero bars, so forth and so on. And by the time they get across California, they are, they've stiffened up. They cannot possibly get in an aero position. They're resting their hands on top of their aero bars because they got to sit up that straight. And you'd be better off having your aero bars higher where they're comfortable. Uh, people have asked, I mean, very few shops will let you take a saddle, some will, and ride it for two weeks and see if you like it and return it. So how do you pick one? Well, go out and ride your own bike for 50, 60, or 70 miles with whatever saddle's on it till your butt's already tired and then take the new saddle out for 25 miles and you'll get a better feel for it. I actually have found saddles are one of the most difficult ones for that though, to be honest. Um, I can ride anything for 100 miles now. I mean, no problem, pretty much no problem at all. It's sometimes I'll even f feel really comfortable. It's really when it gets into for 12 plus hours for me. that. And that's really, really hard to test something out. So you pretty much just got to buy them, try them, and sell them off if it doesn't work at that point, you know. Or sometimes you'll find a shop that'll take it back. But, um, but yeah, so many of these things are, like I said, they work really, really well just for the normal use case that, that they're built for. Um, um, shoes, too, are, n are another great example. It, you know, you can ride anything for a normal bike ride or a two-hour ride or something like that but when you're starting to get into those long distances you gotta you gotta really uh choose wisely and it's probably why um altered riders and specifically don't change gear all that often there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Once you, once you find something that you've gotten through events on, it's really, really tough to change it up. And, and so. it's smart not to, not to change it. Uh, the, the point that Bryce is making is many things will work for your normal ride. And then when you extend the duration is when you find out. And Bryce is saying he can get through, you know, ride almost anything for 100 miles. That For Bryce, that's kind of a normal ride. If your normal ride is 25 miles... Testing something over 50, 40, <laughs> is going to uh, tell you something. Um, brief anecdote, sometimes Coach Hughes does things that aren't so wise. Uh, did my ride last Saturday, longish ride for me, and in the last hour I, I noticed that I was getting chafed on the inside of my left thigh and crotch. And I thought, okay, got home. Got out my wrench and straightened my saddle. It was off ever so slightly. Couldn't bend more than a millimeter. But I noticed it. And so come back to the point that bike fit is very, very important. Uh, Andy Pruitt was uh, director of the Boulder Center for Sports Medicine for years. Uh, now retired from that, but still very active. I probably went up there with two dozen clients for bike fits. Uh, because that can make such a huge, huge difference in how you ride. And bike fit is dynamic. That's one of the things that Andy says. Over time, we change. I'm shorter than I was. I've got bigger feet. They may or may not be related. I'm less flexible. My legs aren't as powerful. So my bike fit is different. If somebody's coming along, getting stronger, getting more flexible, bike fit is again changing so find somebody who really knows how to fit bikes and have your bike fit uh, checked out anything else on equipment gentlemen should we move on to skills I think we should uh, move on I've always said my best skill in ultra is choosing good teammates (laughs) (laughs) what kind of skills do you use when you're racing raw I choose a good teammate. Okay. <laughs> and, and having done that, what else? Oh, gosh. I really, I think it's funny. I I don't have a great self-image of myself when I'm, I'm riding, and, but I work so hard on the mental aspect. I think that's probably my best skill is because I put so much visualization time into what I'm doing, and I just try to get lost and in uh, the performance and focus on where I am and what I'm doing. I'm, I'm certainly not a powerful person. I, I just work really hard. Bryce, anything you'd? It, well, you know, I guess I was, I was waiting to see what, what your definition <laughs> of skills <laughs> all right, all right, is I'm, going I'm to I'll be. Ta- I'll toss out <laughs> my definition. Um, bike handling yeah. is a skill. Riding, can you ride a straight line or can't you? Uh, that, that's worth practicing uh, yeah. in a parking lot no big cars around uh, how well can you control your bike at low speed 
set up a slalom course with some water bottles or pop cans or something and practice working it through that. I guess I was thinking talent. (laughs) (laughs) There's a big difference between talent and skills. I have some skills, but lack the talent. Learning how to descend. So bike skills. Bike skills. We are talking about here. Descending, uh, your weight's already going to start shifting toward the front wheel. When you break, more of your weight shifts toward the front wheel. Get your butt off the back of the saddle. Slide back to balance out. Cornering. Do you know how to pick a line through a corner? Uh, There was a rider, unfortunately, killed here in Boulder a week ago who picked the wrong line through a corner, crossed the double line, ran head on into a truck. That's a skill failure. Uh, so bike handling skills as well as some other ones, but Bryce, George, what would you say we're for having Bryce? Bryce uh, is going to do the mega descents like Mingus Mountain uh, down into Borrego Springs where there's crosswinds and high speed and a lot of tight turns and he's a much better descender than I am. So that's a place where he needs to go out. Yeah, it's um, but developing you know developing those skills is um, that's that yeah that's an that's something I I neglected I think for many many years, um, because it's like oh I know how to ride a bike I I, I actually even use when I moved out to Colorado especially I decided I was going to try and do some more endurance mountain biking races. And I was like, you know, I'll just hop on a mountain bike and I'll and I'll and I'll join, enter some races and and kind of I know how to handle a bike. You know, I've been racing for ten plus years now at this point. And uh, it was actually at the Steamboat Stinger um, mountain bike race where I crashed six times in that race, and I got to the end of it and I just realized right then it's like you got to do something about this, you know, kind of a thing. And, and it's like, yeah, I'm more confident on the road. I mean, so there's a slight difference with that. But so what I did was that the next year I spent working on bike skills um, and mainly on the mountain bike because I, wa- I wanted to then do the, uh, the 24-hour nationals that year or something. But that time that I spent on bike handling skills for mountain biking translated over to the way I looked at road biking as well. Um, I would also kind of sort of bring up along that as we're getting older too, I've noticed my my descending skills have ch- changed while I'm probably a much better descender. Like we were talking earlier about a, a race and um, one of our crew um, members actually crashed in a race over in Europe, right? Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I did a, a ultra race in Europe, I guess about 10 years ago, through some of the craziest descents and rainstorms and things like that, just barreled down these things. I'm just like, I can't believe I'm, I made it through that kind of, kind of a thing. And so as I've gotten older, I have noticed, though, that I'm much more cautious. And, I <laughs> and maybe it's feeling your mortality with the stuff. So it's, it, it's kind of an interesting switch on this like I have I have more skill now than I ever have but I'm also far more cautious than I ever was um, so I, I, I'm having exactly the same experience Bryce uh, I mean it, it, I read with my buddy John Elmblot um, every week and if it's snowing we might just ride a mile and then have breakfast 
and we wrote a bunch of brevets together. And I used to barrel down the canyons around here, you know, as fast around the corners as I can. And now I'm going slowly. And part of it is uh, the consequences of crashing I don't want. Now, to go back to the to the issue of, general issue of skills, when I lived in California, I, I knew I didn't have very good bike handling skills. So I actually took a clinic uh, from one of the local racing clubs, an all-day Saturday clinic, in how to you know, how to ride safely in a group, so forth and so on. And I used to ride every, uh, I think it was Tuesday, with the noon race group, just as a way of practicing my skills and typically about, and, and getting a good speed workout, which lasted about halfway through their ride, at which point I would be off the back. One of the really important points is you don't just develop skills by going out and riding. You need dedicated practice sessions when you work on something. Uh, got an email from a person who uh, is cautious about riding through gates on trails. Okay, go out and put two water bottles six feet apart. You practice riding through them. Okay, put them five feet apart. Practice riding through them. Keep moving them closer until you know you can ride through them. All right, you got that down. Now try riding through them faster. Now try riding through them more slowly. But do some dedicated practices. Uh, um, there was a ram rider years ago who could not reach down and grab a bottle out of the cage without looking at it and wobbling like crazy. Not good. I mean, and that's a skill you can learn. Mm -hmm. So part of it is simply bike handling skills. Part of it is what I'm going to call event management skills. So, you know, I mean, I mean your, your event, you're, you're doing relay, and the time starts from when you leave Oceanside to when you get to Durango. That includes all the time you guys are riding and time off the bike. Now, your relay, so time off the bike, shouldn't be an issue. But for somebody doing a brevet, something like that, time off the bike is an issue. Learning to manage your time off the bike is a skill that you can practice and learn. Learning how to do things on the bike instead of at a control is a skill. You can learn to put on sunscreen. You can learn to take off arm warmers. You can learn to eat regularly. You can learn to drink regularly. Uh, one of our local riders, we were fairly early in a brevet and it was warming up, and I saw him take off his leg warmers while he was riding. That's a little aggressive, but he was able to do it. Uh, I mean, never try doing any of this stuff just sitting up no hands. The pros can do it, and I always think, my God, why did they not crash? There's another guy in Ram a few years ago who was trying to take off his windbreaker riding no hands, and he, he went down and he lost it. So uh, skills around event management, pacing, is another hugely important skill. doesn't come naturally. And you two are going to you're going to be riding hard, but you're also going to be riding hard, recognizing that you got to ride hard for something under 50 hours, and that involves pacing. You're going to pace yourselves for 15 minute pulls. Yeah, that 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 is the trick to this whole thing. And as I mentioned, I, I guess it was in the last uh, podcast, like that is the thing that I'm going to be focusing on the most while I'm riding actually is to sort of control that urge to go barreling out of each on each one because you know we I know what I can do for these distances these times and 
you know, I think we'll we'll tweak it a little bit, like exactly where the range the range is that you can I, each of us can maintain, and we'll kind of get used to that. But um, the main thing is with a long race is to keep it steady. You know, don't uh, was it don't burn matches too often. So very important concept and the don't burn matches too often the idea is that you got you know a small book or box of matches and once you and and every time you have to go hard do something like that you're burning a match and you don't want to burn all your matches before the event is over so what Bryce is talking about is judiciously using his efforts George what about you uh, we approached last year, there were some big changes in the course, and it's going to be the same this year. Uh, but there's some massive climbing coming out of Cottonwood, Arizona, after Mingus Mountain, and kind of the ones that you're familiar with. Uh, the climbing gets a lot more intense. So, our strategy was to just, it was a parade start to Cottonwood, Arizona, and then we'd start racing, which pretty much just kept us steady because having that switch in attitude at uh, Cottonwood, you know, we weren't really able to go a whole lot faster, but all of a sudden it became a lot more focused on racing rather than just staying recovered all the way to that point. So George and Bryce are talking about two important points. One, one is having a plan for how you're going to spend your energy over the race course, and the other is having the, the mental skill to pay attention. I mean, you, you talked about and it's hard to stick to it. You yeah. want to go chase somebody that's passing you, and it's right. like you know, if we stick to our plan, we're probably going to catch you tomorrow night. Right, right. I mean, you're you're, you're talking about climbing, and that that's a huge skill. That's not just big legs and more power. Uh, you want to go into a climb and slowly shift down gear by gear, rather than just dropping down to a low gear pedal over the top don't just get to the top and say made it and sit up but keep pedaling until you're back up to speed if you're riding in a group and you're not quite as strong a climber as they are start at the front of the group and slowly drift to the back so you're not having to climb quite as hard learn if you're better climbing in the saddle or climbing out of the saddle some people i don't but they actually climb more efficiently out of the saddle that's you know that's a skill Learn to climb with a quiet upper body instead of throwing your shoulders back and forth. That burns energy. So there are a whole lot of skills that you can develop one by one to make you better. Uh, remember before one of my PVPs, I was riding with a buddy, and he says, you know, John, if you cut the tangent on these corners, you'll probably save a kilometer. <laughs> Bit of an exaggeration, but you definitely don't ride as far as if you ride the long way around a curve. That's a skill. Uh, it's a skill to eat and drink when you should. It's a whole set of whole set of riding skills, and, and they do vary by uh, kind of riding you're doing. Brent was talking about, or Bryce was talking about doing ultra mountain bike racing. I I decided I was going to do the Leadville 100 one year, and I was a terrible bike handler, so I went to dirt camp in Moab, and I spent a week learning mountain biking skills. And they do translate to road skills. I'm riding along on my road bike and there's a patch of gravel. So what? You can ride right through it. Riding along on my road bike, there's an obstacle. Uh, bunny hop it. 
remember one year I was at, at desert camp and we were barreling down a climb and then it kind of leveled out and we're doing 20 miles an hour and a cattle guard is coming up and people are slowing down. I just bunny hopped it. And the guy came up next year and he says, Coach Shoes, I learned the most important thing from you last year. I sort of scratched my head and say, well, gosh, wonder what I did that was why. He says, I learned how to bunny hop. Uh, you know, another mountain biking skill. Uh, learning how to ride with a looser grip, allowing your front wheel to move around a little. I mean, that's what you do on a mountain bike. And that, that reduces the hand pressure. Less problems with numb hands. Uh, learning not to just lock your front brake up on a mountain bike, you're over the bars. You want to use your front brake, but you want to slide way back. Uh, really useful mountain biking skill, somewhat less so on a road bike, is learning what you cannot ride down. Getting off and walk. Other thoughts on skills, gentlemen? I've always been told that uh, people are envious of my skill to be able to go to sleep during a 15-minute break and catch five minutes, wake up, and be refreshed. I'm envious of that already. I, I, that is not one of my skills for sure. I, I, I've got to be very tired before I fall asleep. So I, even with the breaks off this, I will be surprised if I get any sleep during this race. So flip side, maybe another skill is that I've now built up to where going 50 hours without sleep isn't um, isn't as difficult as it used to be. When yeah. I, so, and that that does build up. Um, the first time I did a 24-hour race, I fell asleep riding on the bike. On a 24. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, the very first one, I had the I had this cr this tandem go by me, and I was going, "Oh, awesome! A tandem to draft off of, hop on the back wheel." And then I ran into their back wheel, and I woke up. And there was no tandem there. I had just been asleep that whole straightaway wow. down, down the road. Um, and that, yeah, that was my first, first experience in a 24-hour race. But then, you know, I pushed it up, and now I'm, you know, it, at over 50, it starts getting a little tough. Um, I start getting sleepy then, but I've definitely gotten to two days pretty, pretty effectively now. So. And that's definitely a skill. That's not just a talent. That's a skill that you develop through practice. Yeah. Um, good friend in California. I'm coaching him for different events. And uh, he used to train a lot with a guy who was training to win Paris Press Paris. And they'd hammer through a 600K in under 24 hours. And then this guy would say, come on, we're going to sit in the motel room and play cards until it's been 48 hours. Practicing. Staying awake, learning how to stay awake. Um, mm. You know, I, mean, I, I got an email from a client. I need to get back to him today and wish him well for his race this weekend. And he's wondering, would a power nap help? Well, yeah, if you can fall asleep quickly, get your 20 minutes and wake up fairly quickly. I mean, if, if Bryce here tried a power nap, he could be lying there for half an hour before he fell asleep. And one of the things that I work on, I like to nap, but if I'm kind of caught up in stuff, I work on learning to just relax and let go. Little anecdote. Good, good friend. Uh, rode a lot of times with him at desert camp. Uh, did some of my tours. We were talking about napping one time, and he says, "Well, I learned to nap when I was in rehab." Yeah, there's a way of proving I could totally relax. So, napping, 
learning to relax can be another skill. I mean, go, go through whatever your kind of event is and figure out what are the skills that for you, if you can get better at them, will make a difference. Bryce talked about drafting a tandem. Drafting is a skill. You gotta learn how to stay close enough that you're actually in the draft, but not so close that you get taken down. You need to learn to look ahead of the, of the bike, not assuming that they'll warn you about stuff. You need to learn to protect your front wheel in case they move over a little. All kinds of skills. You need to learn how to pull through and be an effective part of that draft. Ab- absolutely. I mean, too, many, too many people pull through and think, I'm in the front, but I'm going to show them how strong I am. And people are getting popped off the back. You, you need to know how long to pull. I remember riding the Davis Double Century with a couple of friends uh, years ago, and there was always a pretty strong crosswind in the first 50 miles. And this group came by in an echelon backwards, so every rider was catching the wind. <laughs> that was not a skill. They, they knew you were supposed to echelon in the wind, but they had not quite figured it out. Um, in a pace line, you drop on the lee side, so you're protected going back, right on the windy side. Uh, another rider was killed two days ago here in Boulder, uh, moved across uh, one of the roads and was hit from behind while this rider was trying to make a left turn. Now, I don't know the details, but my suspicion is that was a skill failure of not knowing how to make a left turn in traffic and just deciding I'm going to make a left turn, I'm going to move across. Knowing how to ride in traffic is a hugely important skill. I've been hit a couple times, but never riding around town or in traffic or anything like that. So, And if you look on the RBR website here, there are uh, a lot of articles on riding skills. Well, John, to wrap up our six success factors, uh, anything else you want to add? Yeah, I've just written a, a new article on how to use all six of the success factors to become a better rider, and the key is using all of them, not just the ones that you enjoy or you're good at. You want to spend time on the ones that you're not so good at. In this session, we've been talking about skills. Uh, if you ride a lot in a group and you're a racer, you probably got pretty good bike handling skills. But if you don't, that's one to work on. We've talked about mental. You can develop mental skills. We've talked about training. You can become more skillful at selecting the kind of training you do in recovery. So, new article here on the website on using all six six success, uh, success factors. Why didn't I have seven success factors? Darn if I know. <laughs> Anyhow, using all six of them to become a better rider. It's available as an article. It's also part of a new bundle of uh, four more of the best articles that I have written for RBR on different elements. So check those out. Coach John Hughes and uh, Vice President of Training Peaks, Bryce Walsh, thanks very much for joining us. From the Scratch Lab Studios in Boulder, Colorado, RoadBikeRider.com Radio, I'm George Thomas. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.